0: Joining me today is Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson. Dr. Johnson, how can we distinguish truth from falsehood with regard to
1: historical events? Of course, this is the central question of my entire existence. And the last thing you can do in this respect is to go into a question with the answer already in your mind. And the only way to do that is to divest yourself of any self-interest. Um, And I knew this from the beginning, special pleading makes people sound like idiots. You have to be able to control your emotions. You have to be able to prepare yourself for uncomfortable results when you begin reading. Um, For major issues like you're talking about. It is um, the reading involved is tremendous. And you have to get the lay of the land as far as the uh, literature is concerned. Um, primary document, depending on the issue we're talking about here, primary documents were always nice, but they're often misleading because just because they're primary doesn't mean that they're they're good. Um, and uh, interpretations from other especially in very uh, sensitive areas, interpretations by other scholars, um, especially today is, is very suspect, too. So, yeah, you're gonna have to be prepared to be alone, to be attacked, to be uncomfortable. That's your, your absolute first ingredient um it's basic honesty and i think very few people are capable of that uh self-interest is involved be financial ideological or religious um you're gonna sound foolish oh, except for people who don't know anything about it you know i uh went from catholicism to orthodox which was a brutal transition for me over several years uh rejecting capitalism um these took a lot I have to read myself into these things. So, um, you know, as a as a basic, the way it's been over the last few years, when I find academic historians and talking heads agreeing with a position, I often assume it's wrong, um, especially if they don't really give good reasons. Uh, one good example is the Rohingya, so-called Rohingya crisis in southern Burma. Um, no one has ever given a good reason as to why the Burmese government has been uh, deporting and attacking them. It's because they're different or something very, you know, very vague like that. They don't give a good bono, Then that's when you have to start working. That's how I got into the Burmese uh, situation. Johnson's law, of course, is very important. If no one knows anything about a topic, your audience doesn't know anything. Well, why are you going to work so hard for you? You can say anything. Hey, give a basic outline you know hey, if you're wrong you're wrong no one's going to know um so ultimately truth of truth of falsehood of a historical event um is responsibility of the author and the only way to do it is to eliminate and destroy self-interest and it's very difficult for me to admit to the to a crime of the orthodox church for example but I know I have to from time to time and I think our listeners and readers Um, Respect us for it. You know, one of the, of course, you know, um, there's a million different things we could talk about in this respect. But whenever your emotions, your connections, financially or otherwise, are involved, um, that's probably one topic you shouldn't be researching.
0: When it comes to the crimes of the Soviet Union, you wrote an entire book on this. When you start this project, what do you start looking for? Uh, secondary sources and then primary or you go straight to primary bypassing uh, other uh, current interpretations
1: well a lot of my books came from separate articles that i put together rewrote you know kind of standardized um, citations and then the book comes into existence Um, there have been a few times like my very first book i wrote the book as such there's um usually it's irritation that um that there's a myth, there's a story that sounds so probably absurd that I have to fix it. That was where the first Rome came from. Um the lectures on medieval Russia came from my university course on that topic. Um, uh, and I just rewrote those and, and made those into a standard uh, text, so that was simply to get that stuff out there. Um, my Serbia book came from a document I found at the Library of Frederick Dickinson University, that no one knew was there from uh, a prince of the the royal family um typewritten in english so i can't say i have a standard method but usually it's some kind of irritation something is not being said um that there is lies don't have any real support to it they're not even trying to make a good case and i start with an article and i end up with 100 pages so um and but but generally speaking my books are lectures put together and then standardized are, you know, essays put together. And, but it's still for the same reason. Uh, as far as primary, secondary sources, um, the great thing about secondary sources is that they tell you where the primary sources are. And thank God we live in the, the uh, age of, of the web where all these things can be looked up and, and read. Um, let me give you one example. And this is, this, the minute you mention that, this it's occurred to me. I was and I am a supporter of the, the historical figure of General Suharto of Indonesia, who wiped out the Communist Party uh, in 1966. I've always claimed that the US was not particularly anti-communist. That was never a big issue with them. They didn't support these military dictators in Latin America or elsewhere. elsewhere. They were vehemently opposed to them in most cases. That's an old myth. Uh, and I have a whole book about that. On... Um, um, the military dictators of Latin America, which is on Amazon now, um, it says bombshell. New York Time, New York Times article came out a couple of years ago, that said the CIA knew about this and supported this, and we have these twelve documents, these twelve cables from the embassy that uh, that say it. Well, they're assuming that no one's going to read this. Well, I went and I read the twelve cables, and it says nothing of the kind. So either they read it and just lied, or didn't read it at all. And it turns out the government was not involved in killing these communists. They were often just handing them over to the Islamic movement in different parts of of Indonesia. And they were dispatching them. He saves, of course, Indonesia from uh, falling under uh, Soviet orbit, orbit in the 60s. And of course, he has to be punished for that. He was never particularly supported by the US, but for them to come out and say that the CIA was giving him advice and backing him and knew exactly what was going on and, and kill as many as you want. Uh, and here we have these, nine, I think it was 12 or nineteen cables uh, documents, all you know recently declassified, that prove this: I read them. And not only do they not say that, in a few cases, they almost say the opposite. Um, and I have to admit, you know, there is one good thing about Wikipedia. And that Wikipedia usually has some of the best bibliographies, where all the primary sources can be found. Yes, that's the one use it has. Um, otherwise, it's pretty useless. So it's going to depend on the question. If there's a contentious issue that um, the primary sources don't agree—I mean, sorry—the secondary sources don't agree on, or especially if they all agree, which is worse, um, then you have to go to the originals, to the extent that they're available. You know, so sometimes the originals. You know, people are their people. They have, they're self-interested. They, um, they exaggerate. They want to them con- you know, they're self-important. All this stuff. You know, uh, so even primary sources have to be read critically.
0: When it comes to the crimes of the Soviet Union, can you give me an example of one of their earlier crimes? And then we'll go later. Give me an example of the crime and how you know it took
1: place. Well, let's talk. Just before we started speaking, um, I when you mentioned that topic, I thought of the Holodomor, the, the starvation of Ukraine under Stalin. There are some Russian nationalists, obviously I'm not one of them, that either deny this or minimize this. Well, again, thank God for the web, because all the primary sources are online. You have Soviet bureaucrats with Zenovia, Stalin himself, talking about this policy. Um, it wasn't secret. Ultimately, this came down to, I have a actually a part of it. I don't know if it was in my Soviet book or not. I can never remember. But because um, I, I end with Stalin there. Um, um, but the primary sources, it's the only place you can go. This is what Walter Durante was trying to cover up. You get the nobel prize for that which i think has been withdrawn um so for years no one even talked about that and so whenever you're challenged you have no choice but to go to primary sources and here uh there's a no one is very important and of course ukrainian websites have been uh, promoting these um for um for quite a while but now thanks to the web we can read these for ourselves
0: the Holodomor is often um, dismissed as a famine that could occur in any country. Uh, what are some other crimes of the Soviet Union that you can say or actually calculated acts of evil by Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, or uh, anyone else?
1: Probably the best, you know, one of the best examples is over a period of of uh, roughly a decade, the collectivization of agriculture. This was, um, and this, you know, Lenin advocated this as well. This is one of the great crimes of the USSR. Where people who had no knowledge of farming or agriculture were put in charge of essentially prison camps. Where um, uh, people uh, who didn't know each other, uh, random people were forced to work. They were given very little money for the crop and were always uh, tightly under, under, um, under guard. And this led to – one of the things of course, led to the famine. It's one of the things that bottomed out the Soviet economy and uh, it was eventually abandoned. But um, uh, over a period of a few years, when it was first introduced in the early Stalin era, um, it, it led to a massive number of deaths. It led to starvation um, and people simply weren't working because it wasn't worth it to work anymore. So these are all – all these crimes are, are connected. Um, uh, the early rebellions against the Soviet, um, um, government, um, were, um, every one of them had at least one massacre attached to it. You know, this goes on and on. And again, for, uh, for, for these things, you know, collectivization was policy. That's not any, no one denies that. The fact that it was a failure is in the primary documents too, because after a while, you know, no one disagreed but you know because of the us thing, obsession with hitler um this is not as widely known but collectivization and this is a case, is a case in mouse china too even even Pol pot for that matter um it's the greatest crime that was ever committed uh i think in history because you take those two countries you have something like 40 million deaths either starvation or overwork whatever and the worst part is that it meant that the united states had to feed them Russia was feeding the world under the Czars, but when collectivization took place, um, they were starving. and of course the u s was right there, and they were always dependent on Western food aid and food purchases to uh, to exist. You can't really have a cold war if you're if you're feeding your enemy so but the sheer number of deaths, I suppose, can never really be pinpointed um but I, I I'm not going to even venture a guess, certainly in the millions. but um but that it, it's, you know, a period of time that was introduced. It, agriculture collapsed. You had executions. You had people refusing to work, and you had starvation.
0: as far as the massacres go, is that how they would? Increase power over certain industries or groups of people by first committing in massacre as a show of force to intimidate everyone else. Where would these massacres take place, and why?
1: Um, you know, after the Kronstadt rebellion, um, you had a whole bunch of these in Kazan, um, all over the place. Where, um, and of course, to say Kachin. Um. It came, it, it was something like the, the uh, Genghis Khan idea or the Tamerlane idea, I should say. If you commit a massacre, you're going to save lives because no one's going to resist after that. Yeah. Often what the Soviets would do is there was a peasant rebellion. And a lot of these don't even have names. Um, they would dress up in peasant garb. And start shooting and start, you know, start shooting and then turn, turn on them and start shooting them. Um. And then commit a terrible crime. You know, and say if there was a certain uniform or something like that. They did this all the time. They functioned by duplicity constantly in this respect. Um, and propaganda. You mentioned control over people. Propaganda is really important. Humiliation. We could talk about, you know, Israel pumping uh, pornography into the occupied territory. The constant demoralization of your enemy is um, was extremely important. No one did it like the Soviets did. That's what the Soviet press, you know, how they functioned, and life in the camps. We can just talk about the Gulag as such Um, turned out to be responsible for maybe 20 percent of the Soviet economy, Um, even even after Stalin died. And it never quite went away. So uh, ethnic nationalism was something they had to destroy. And again, that's where the Holodomor comes in. Uh, I think it was Zinovia. It was a few few others. You know, is his real name made it clear that this wasn't so much an economic matter, but worrying about a prosperous group of farmers that did very well, very skilled, and also had a strong nationalist foundation. That was the reason for their Holodomor. Wiping out that class was extremely important. And I'm willing to go so far as to say that the Soviets weren't worried too much about um, starvation in certain places. A, because you know it's what they wanted, and B, they knew that they could rely on others um to take care of the food problem for them they never solved the food problem that was because of collectivization the virgin lands program in um in the most southern part of the ussr where uh lands that had never been tilled before you had deportees sent down there under favorable terms but nowhere to store anything uh roads that that were too small or too weak to um to support any kind of truck i mean the stupidest things and one of the reasons that He was overthrown because of the failure of the Virgin Lands program. It became became a mockery. And again, you have starvation. You have death. You have – this was part of the agricultural crop coming from here. um, All their plans fell apart. And that was a simple incompetence and stupidity. And I mentioned before, you have these – again, in many cases, often Jewish um, uh, commissars sent to these areas to oversee these things that have no idea what agriculture is. They don't know they've never been been to a farm before. So, you know, um, but the Gulag system, I wanted to say the Gulag system is your. Um, overarching crime of the Soviet Union. You have this this network of camps, big part of the economy where a ridiculous number of people were sent and it's almost not quite, but almost certain death.
0: And was this uh, people indiscriminately sent to gulags or all political prisoners or anyone who technically committed a crime? How was it that you ended up there?
1: I, uh, you know, I've i read a ton of stuff in Russian um, concerning the, the gulag system. And there is a tremendous amount of disagreement in this respect. Putin's idea is that there was this general um, political suspicion. Uh, based on the uh, anonymous denunciation that got you sent there, those now higher up people who were um, uh, an irritant or a threat to the system were sent there. I'm going to make a distinction between the Gulag system and the mental institutions. The mental institutions came later, and that was you know the basic b- basis of the institution was in Soviet psychiatry, if you could even call it that was that opposition to the soviet regime meant you must be what we would call anti-social uh almost schizophrenic and you can see this even in youth and they were experimented on and not a whole lot of them came out of it but again the mental institutions are another are another crime but as far as the gulag are concerned there was a very brief trial um there were you know uh, terms five ten years the smaller terms you often would come back um and it was um, forced labor. So of course you had to be able to do that. Usually there was some reason for it. You're connected with someone who's a rebel. You are a rebel yourself. You've published something, you've said something. You can't enforce 100% of course, because there's not enough men, but wherever they could find something. One of my favorite um, stories, that souls in mentions and um, I forget where now, he's written on it so many things that they'd be transported through the cities. In disguised trucks, and they would say meat deliveries. So not only were they lying about what was happening, but people thought there's so much, so much prosperity here. That look at the meat trucks are everywhere. So um, the the entire thing was based on deceit. So of course there was some indiscriminate stuff, but I don't think that was the bulk of it. There had to be a trial, and then um, a, a term assigned to it. When it comes to
0: being sent to Siberia, is this just an expression or a thing that actually took place and why?
1: Well, no, there, there, were, there were camps everywhere. Um, you know, the North Sea and some of these other places were nasty only because they were so far north. Not only do you have bitter winters, but then you're being killed by mosquitoes in the summer because you have so much standing, warm, uh, standing water. Peter the Great did that. When he constructed St. Petersburg, he... Um, he sent Cossack POW, again, a group of people who he hated, who had resisted him in the past, to work and dig this thing out. You had 100,000 deaths at a very low estimate. So St. Petersburg was literally built on the bones of his enemies. It was almost an occult ritual. That he, in fact, it was an occult ritual. So this is a, a new thing. Siberia, uh, Siberia, you know, the southern part of Siberia is very beautiful. The northern part is very difficult. I think it's some of the most beautiful landscapes in the world. But um, they had camps up there for various reasons, um, but camps were in every part of the USSR.
0: Looking at other crimes uh, committed by communists, uh, I'm mainly focusing on this because there was a – the study came out, 29 percent of uh, Gen Z kids in college – Uh, have no problem with communism and think it's a good idea that everything be collectively owned. 17% of professors in the social sciences say that uh, they identify as Marxists. Of course, the Venona files come out showing that Joseph McCarthy was right. There were about 350 uh, communists in the State Department, the Rosenbergs, Harry Dexter, White, Alger Hiss, etc. So because the term communism isn't put in front of our face, it doesn't uh, – we forget to register that it's actually a problem, and all degrees moving towards that is uh, is also uh, an issue. When it comes to why you are an anti-communist, why is that?
1: That the theory itself is absurd. It denies the family. It denies the nation. Um, It denies any political system except the rule of the party. That doesn't mean I haven't learned things from Karl Marx. Karl Marx's early writings are actually very good. The role of money. uh, Money dissolves everything. But um, the destruction of national cultures is a part of policy. You know, when you talk about like a a Soviet or Chinese uh, communist massacre, I was just doing this with, uh, the, uh, in Vietnam, concerning Vietnam. That's actually part of policy. When you other governments may do it more or less as an aberration. But when cleansing the nation of undesirables, who are not people in their minds, um, becomes a part of the agenda. And it has always been a part of the agenda. Massacres, or whatever it is, are, um, are praiseworthy. Remember, Marxists are pure materialists, which is another mm-hmm. giant problem with me. If human beings are nothing more than flesh in motion, then what difference does it make if one is killed or not? So, um, but Marx's early writings are very interesting. There is something to be said about surplus value. I'm not 100% sure about the labor theory of value, but, um, um, but that does not mean that Marxism as a system. Is, is viable. So, um. You know, it, it's such a struggle to deal with it. You have know, such a low level of understanding. You're talking about uh, the younger kids. Um, they like labels a lot. You could promote a system, just not call it Marxist or Stalinist. Yeah. And if the label isn't on it, um, then th- they're good with it. But you know, the historical level among academics, the historical level is so low. The knowledge is so bad, and it's getting worse. Not to mention the fact that you are in a diseased economy, the last days of empire here where no, you don't have oligarchy anymore. You have monopoly. And because no one knows anything about the you know, right-wing alternatives to capitalism, syndicalism or whatever, they simply assume that the only possible alter- alternative is Marxism. You know, Marx was, you know, again, uh, as Bakunin said, in the first international. Marx received a lot of money from the Rothschilds. and a lot of this completely destroyed other forms of um, collective ownership. The Prudhonists have always been very sympathetic to, to Pierre Joseph Prudhon. Um, but these are very obscure to most people. So the capitalist system has obviously failed miserably. And that's you can't even cover that anymore. Therefore, communism must be true. And I'm willing to I'm willing to bet that's pretty much and that's again it goes through propaganda, uh, ignorance. Where the only possible alter- alternative is uh or some version of of communism You I mean not call it that I call it something else um but, but i mentioned the bakunin marx thing he received money from the rothschilds one of the things that came from that was that every other kind of socialism disappeared they were pretty much kicked out of the first international socialism you had a million different versions of socialism over the over the centuries and um Um, And I'm talking this based on the community, not on the collective. Those are two different things. Um, And those were wiped out of the first international. Therefore, people began to think and the more ignorant began to think that if you're anti-capitalist, therefore, you must be a communist.
0: What is propaganda and how can it be identified?
1: I'm pretty sure propaganda is a, um, um, a pejorative. You know, when you are a government or a ruling class that has no right to rule, your only option is to manipulate people, getting them to think that you have a right to rule, or that whatever you're doing is in their best interest, or the final manifestation of the historical cycle, or the apogee of justice. Um and so you have to control the press in such a way that they begin not just writing this in editorials, but picking stories and ideas and talking about them with that in mind. Because people work all the time and they have kids and they don't, they don't have a lot of time to think critically about this. Americans especially don't think systematically. Um, they know a few soundbites. They know a few slogans. And it's not you – know, politics for them is like rooting for the Steelers. Um, so um, what was the second part of your question? What is propaganda and what? And how can it be identified? Yeah, you know, it's simple special pleading. It can be identified because um, usually propaganda in its purest form doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, special pleading is the idea that um, because you're self-interested, you have to set up a a double standard. And, you know, propaganda tends to have a, a pretty, in America, it has a pretty uniform structure. They use a lot of vague words. A lot of slogans, a lot of repetition, a lot of pointing to authority, uh, they claim that they're somehow rebels. And when you have the music industry publishing academia, um, not every every institution concerning communications in the country saying the same thing, it's it's pretty remarkable. but the the assumptions, the sloganeering, and the lack of the I've been saying for a long time, one of the ways you can identify this is that um, they never give a reason. I am thinking about the um, so-called concentration camps in Western China, which I have a paper on. Um, No one has ever explained why the heck they're doing that or how is it in their interest. They're trying to build up the economy of that part of the world. It's very desolate. And the so-called concentration camps are in fact education centers. They desperately need the, there's a whole policy of equalizing the Western part to the Eastern part and to resettle people out there. To think that given that policy, they have any interest in causing, you know, violent, warfare, death is absurd. And you could say this for a lot of places. What what is the, How is this regime, whatever government you're talking about, what is their interest in doing this? Why in heaven's name are they spending so much resources, putting so much resources to destroying a certain group of people or whatever the, what the claim is? Um, and propaganda often will never give you that or they'll give it in su- uh, in a very vague way. Um, it's significant that Karl Marx never described what a communist society would look like at its final stage. Everything was critical of, of what was. Almost everything was, was critical of what was. The anarchists didn't do that. So um, a lot of vague sloganeering, the use of buzzwords, um, weak arguments, the lack of quibono, logical inconsistencies, and uniformity with other people in that field. That's a, a, a pretty quick and easy way to um, uh, to recognize propaganda and amateurism in the field. I've always said that in in um, you could always spot an, in a historical question, you could always spot an amateur when they start using modern Western terms to describe a an old society, a much older society. So someone talking about human rights when they're talking about Plato, like Alan Bloom did. You have to laugh. You can't hold them to that stand. They had no concept of what that would be. Um, so that's this one quick example of how and it's, it's propaganda, although in a, in a, in a historical sense. Um, I could spot it without, you know, even things like phony quotes. I could spot a phony quote um, right right off the bat. And it usually is that someone is condemning themselves. So there are quotes about Lenin that Lenin is saying, I'm gonna kill everybody, I'm gonna hang babies in, in, in Great Britain. Our party is to destroy um to destroy civilization. You know, stuff like that. And you know, they're not gonna say that about themselves. They're not gonna condemn themselves. They're gonna say that they are the apogee of history. Lenin does say he has to cleanse society, but um, only with you know the best interests in mind. No one is going to admit that there's going to hang people for no reason, and that a whole party is this, you know death and destruction. That's what we're here for. But phony quotes from Len Stone, um, Hitler, they all they, they say the same thing, and it's really easy to identify something that they would never say, something that doesn't make any sense, especially when you're expert propagandist. Uh, they'll they'll never say. So that's how you. Could, but that's just one other example. The phony quotes. Uh, God, so many of these things that circulate on the web, um, quotations that they use. Um, Attribute to people So many of them are false And I don't know why people can't identify the fact That no one is going to condemn themselves In front of others So So that's that's the issue here You
0: wrote a paper And I had trouble finding which paper this was from But you spoke about the importance of tradition And far from being something that just Idiots do and is unnecessary and something we should throw out and replace with pure logic. There actually is a good reason to embrace tradition and a
1: large utility in doing so. Why is tradition important? Well, tradition isn't some arbitrary set of practices. Traditions concerning the family, for example, these are a part of natural law. A man and a woman, the extended family living under one roof, the tight – knit community of the family and all of the rituals that go along with it. This is a part of natural law. Um, only in modern societies have they tried to destroy the Soviet Union, one of the first. Um, tradition, among other things, is what works, what's worked in the past, what people have gotten used to. Um, they're not uh, an institution is tradition, but practices within the institution are are, are traditions. Um, in the Orthodox Church, for example, the claim is made. That tradition is the unwritten doctrines of Christ and the apostles. The unwritten doctrines that, or even even those that are written in, in obscure, um, there's only so much you could fit on a page. And tradition is one of the touchstones of truth, if you could trace it back to the, to the apostolic era or, or thereabouts. So tradition makes, is a, a nation is based on its traditions and customs, encapsulated in language. These are structures of survival. They didn't come from nothing. They came from um, struggle. They came from foreign occupation, suffering, starvation. Traditions didn't come from nowhere. They are a protective shield for a population. And is
0: that why the communists and tyrants of any flavor. If we only call them communists, we're only going to be looking for them. So tyrants of any flavor hating tradition and hating the family structure because they see it as a competing allegiance. They see it as a hurdle to getting them to have this sort of monopoly on authority within a certain region.
1: When Queen Elizabeth the first was colonizing Ireland, especially in, in the northern part, She made it very clear. It's actually her exact quote was. um, We're going to make sure that this generation has no idea who their grandparents were. And she began a a campaign of burning and torching uh, monastic libraries and any possible uh, written source. Of um, of identity. Therefore, there's no foundation for rebellion. Um, Peter the Great created this myth that Russia before him was uh, ignorant and illiterate, and he set on a campaign to destroy the annals of the noble families throughout the country, Um, which which were a huge source of of local history. And he did a very good job of that. And the point is to make people ignorant about who they are. And he was a revolutionary himself. so yeah i i I agree though with one of the one of the marks of a tyrant a true tyrant is their hatred of any kind of competing um uh, ideology in turning any kind of competing institution so i think your instincts are are perfect in that respect um capitalism though is exactly the same way coca-cola goes into a place like indonesia and does everything in its power this is actually there's a book about this to destroy um the tea industry and they ran uh advertisements and they had things put into tv shows showing that tea is for old ladies you're not strong you're not manly whatever it is if you're drinking that stuff coke is what you want to do they went out of their way to make tea drinking um effeminate to destroy and they they almost succeeded um, so again that's a very minor tradition of, of tea drinking but it wasn't minor for coke i'm not sure how successful that was but you have internal documents that's actually benjamin barber's jihad versus mcworld that story i first read there so um competing ideas competing institutions have to go remember the family centuries ago wasn't the nuclear family that's a creation of the 1950s. the family was a was the extended family we're all talking about hundreds of people you didn't have the mobile society like you had now uh you know the the, the serbian um uh, medieval Serbian um, unit of society was this family, hundreds and hundreds of people. It would include, um, of course, obviously in-laws were included, but also servants, anyone who works for you. And you were treated all pretty much in the same way under a under a patriarchal head. Um, so we talk about things like the family and the institutions that go along with it, or sorry, the traditions that go along with it, um, remember what they meant. And which is, um, and I'm glad I I mentioned that because it did remind me of a very important idea. Words today, and this has been a a big, almost a crusade of mine, don't mean what they meant 100 years ago, whether translation or otherwise. Um, And I've seen this before. A family is a classic example. Love is another example. Law is another example. Uh, Politics is another example. Words have been so mangled today that to take that mangled definition and to read it back centuries ago is a sure a route to error. And family is one of them. You weren't talking about, um, you weren't talking about, and everything was communal. Everything was about social belonging. You don't have the isolated individual in the basement like you have today. None of that existed in, in previous centuries. So um, taking these words, and using them for um, earlier civilizations is, again, a sign of amateurism, may well be a, a identifying mark of propaganda. Because, um, again, going back to that question, propaganda is false. Again, it's a pejorative. You can't have positive propaganda. You know, um, it's like you can't have loving, loving rape. You know, it's by definition a bad thing. So, and that's, yeah, again, so these are some of your marks for that. And we could we could talk for hours on that question.
0: Speaking of words that have different meanings, the type of capitalism that I would uh, support would be defined from a, a PhD from Las, uh, University of Las Vegas, Nevada, Hans Hoppe, in his book A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. And he says we can have two sorts of approaches to things. We could have communism, the abolition of private property. Socialism, the institutionalized aggression against private property, or capitalism, the institutionalized recognition or a social system based on the explicit recognition of private property and non-aggressive contracts between individuals and private property owners. Um, When you say capitalism, what are you referring to?
1: Well, capitalism is – and I think – I'm pretty sure Karl Marx coined the term – means the rule of capital. It does not mean the free market. Yeah. Um, and again, even the free market, I have issues with. But capitalism is the rule of corporations, especially banks, that create the market rather than satisfy it. Um, they can get away with paying uh, low wages. They are, um, they are, um, you know, at war almost with their communities. And the concept is is that you privatize profits an externalized cost. And if there's anything that defines uh, the capitalism of today, it, it would be that. But yeah. it's in the interest of corporate America to do these things. It's in the self-interest of corporate America to have their people uh, at the FDA um, or, or anywhere. I mean, the defense I- industry is heavily represented in the Pentagon in uniform, and if they retire, they go off and work for, for Boeing. It's in their interest to do that. So I don't believe it's an aberration But these companies that have grown that strong. Know how to protect themselves, and this is what they do. Um, It's hard today to talk about the distinction between government and the private sector because it really doesn't exist. It's an outmoded idea when you have, first of all, government agencies privatized all over the place, having contractors. On the other hand, having this revolving door. Between the public and private sector. you know so facebook in great britain hired a group of former facebook executives um, sorry uh, uh, executives in their in their version of the fcc to sit on their board so they knew exactly what they had to do to get their way um, and this happens you know blackrock of course is an extreme example where the central banks of the, the major central banks of the world they at least have one representative of the blackrock board and vice versa that's, you know, it's a monopoly. You can't get any stronger than that. So it's in their interest to do these things. So it's really difficult for us to even talk about the difference between the state, the state apparatus and the private sector. They've grown so powerful that, um, that you can't tell them apart. And the debt that the U.S. is in is such that they need to privatize these things. It's almost like the sale of offices in 18th century uh, France. So, but I don't think that's an aberration. I, I think i think you know capitalism has a natural course and and that's really what it is so if you want to maintain the reign of small business you know, workers control you have to have laws that keep that from happening um and hopper is is someone who i've read i don't remember that i read it so long ago but um so that's that's where i would come down on that the free market has tremendous benefits i'm not so sure it exists in most places anymore
0: Let's get into the Holocaust. I want to uh, define that term so we know we're talking about the same thing. The three pillars that I think uh, are necessary to uh, know what we're talking about is, one, the Holocaust means a plan to exterminate European Jewry by the National Socialist regime in Germany. Two, six million deaths took place. Three... These were intentional deaths, primarily uh, using gas chambers as a method of execution. So, using that term in those ways, I'm going to uh, try and steelman the case for why uh, I do say that uh, the Holocaust is something that, uh, th- that happened. I uh, think the uh, original justification, of course, was referred to as the Havara Agreement or the Transfer Agreement which was uh, expulsion uh, of uh, Jews out of Europe and into uh, places in Madagascar. There was also an alliance with Zionists where they had the same exact interest, uh, getting Jews out of Europe. So one of the first things that I think got this uh, Holocaust operation moving was having millions of Jews under National Socialist control during the war, say 1942 era, Nazis saw them as an enemy Uh, security risk, taking up the scarce resources in a time of war. 1942, you have Operation Reinhard, trains arriving at Belzec, Sobibor, and Triblanka, roughly 2.4 million Jews altogether, 600,000 Russian Jews, 1.8 million Jews. I believe the inability to account for where those Jews were after the war is uh, an example that we have of them actually getting killed. When it comes to uh, evidence from Goebbels, I have his diary, March 27, 1942, he said 60% of Europe's Jews have been liquidated. On December 12, 1942, Goebbels says, we already have to answer for some things if we do not want to run the risk of gradually becoming discovered. October 7, 1943, he says, beginning in February 24, I'm sorry, Goebbels, begins to speak of the Jewish question in the past tense as something that is behind them. So originally the thesis was, well they just had to exterminate enemies of the empire, they were security risks, they could have revolted and weakened uh Nazi power in Europe, but then they just needed the labor force because things were not going as successful as they wanted to on the eastern front. Next piece of evidence I have in 1943, I have the CORE report. Himmler received the statistical report he commissioned from SS Master Statistician Dr. Richard CORE. CORE referred to this as a final extended report. Himmler had wanted the report at the beginning of 1943, and CORE presented him with the first provisional report on March 23rd, asking for a few more months until July to present the final extended report. The figure he came up with was... 2,419,656, 1.7 killed in extermination camps and 633,000 on the Eastern Front. Finally, we have Himmler saying in May 24th, 1944, I believe, gentlemen, that you know me well enough to realize I am not a bloodthirsty man nor a man who takes pleasure or finds sport in the harsher things he must do. When I recognize the necessity of something, I will do it unflinchingly. As to the Jewish women and children, I did not believe I had the right to let these children grow up to become avengers who would kill our fathers and grandchildren. That's according to Rutledge History of the Holocaust. Finally, Himmler says, I am convinced that things would look bleak for the front that have been built up to the east of the general-occupied Poland – if we had not resolved the Jewish problem there, if, for example, the ghetto in Lublin or the massive ghetto in Warsaw with its 500,000 inhabitants were still in existence. So we have Kor saying that these Jews were dispatched abgang by a special treatment in the eastern camps and are now dead, totus fallen, to the tune of 2.4 million. We have Goebbels uh, Im- implying that they need to be killed. We have Himmler saying that it took place. We have Kor's report that. After, uh, we also have uh, large-scale revolts in Triblanka and Sobibor. When it said that those are being shut down, that is an indicator that those Jews uh, responded uniquely, uh, because they knew that they were next uh, in line because they were no longer useful for labor. So. My biggest point is the missing Jews of Operation Reinhardt. Thank you for letting me go on that. That is really all I have to say on the topic as to uh, why I have my current position. What
1: is your response to this? Well, I appreciate it, and I have no problem listening to that. I've come across this before, Michael Shermer and a few others. Um, Thank God this is not a big area for me. I have nothing published on the question. But, of course, working for the Barnes Review, I came across and I read most of these reports over the years. Um I think we both watched the David Cole um um presentation saying a lot of these same things. I think I think Cole estimates two million as a final death count, which makes them, you know, pretty well off compared to the Belarusians or or, or the Russians in that sense. Um, uh, there's a few things to say. Some of these reports have been criticized not not that they're not authentic but they are distorted um I'm willing to say that himmler is probably your best bet himmler in both I would think the Posen speech is what you were referring to he made two of them where it was almost a, a bloodthirsty idea but himmler was like that um yeah, people don't re- in the east you're t- and just like the, the ghettos and everything else you're talking about an armed partisan population you're not talking about you know children in the playground in the East, especially, the German High Command always talked about um, these partisans as a huge part of the um especially you know when when the Posen speeches were made, the war was pretty much over. and overwhelmingly they were of of Jewish background, and overwhelmingly, the political commissars in the Soviet army were of Jewish background. You're right to talk about the security threat idea. You're also right to bring up the Havara agreement. Um, so. Um, I take a moderate position in this respect. Uh, my, okay, my, one of my big problems with the Holocaust in general is called the Holocaust, as if they're the only ones that make any difference. You had slaughters all over the place, deliberate slaughters based on race or ethnicity. Um, this was just one of many. I, I don't believe in the death camps. I think that—I mean, sorry—the gas chambers. I think that's been pretty much dispatched by now. Zyklon um, B would be very ineffective. In that respect, the analysis of the um, and the fact that, you know, the US couldn't even get to Auschwitz. That was a Soviet uh, construction. Um, you know, um, so there's definitely problems. The six million figure um, is, is an exaggeration. Like the six percent figure is an exaggeration. Um, some of these, you know, um, I've come across these reports one time or another. The only one that I really would take seriously would be um, Himmler. And Himmler is talking about the Eastern Front. He's talking about reasons for, and he made these speeches, um, especially the 44 one. He made these speeches um, in the face of military defeat. He knew what was happening. Uh, They were privately talking about the absolute crisis of the Eastern Front. But um, the camps were largely self-governed. The Reich didn't have the resources especially in 44-45, and I think it was the Dean of of Holocaust Studies, who I'm blanking on his name right now, it'll come to me, um, you made the claim that the killings occurred in 44-45 at a time of extreme crisis. So many of the numbers um, that are purported to be from this Holocaust come from starvation. It comes from the fact that the Allies had bombed Um, Supply lines, such that even German soldiers weren't getting, uh, weren't getting fed. Um, There's a big debate over how the Auschwitz camp, for example, was organized. They did have their own currency. They did work. Um, So many of the survivor um, stories are contradictory. Many of them have been exposed as fraudulent. This is wartime. We don't really know what it's like to be, especially on the losing side of a war, um and having to ra- uh, rally your men i know it's pretty commonly accepted that in the east the partisans played a huge role in the german defeat but i remember even as a young man i said i can't believe that you know hitler would um spend the tremendous resources necessary to create these camps with millions of people when he had nothing when you know they, they they weren't feeding soldiers, the fuel had had um, uh, almost uh, run out. but he's going to spend money on that. Um, but they were a security threat. They were hemmed in on both sides, the Soviets to the east, of course the German lines to the west. They were attached to you know the partisan unit. even even in the Warsaw ghettos. these were armed communities. The pogroms are the same way. these weren't you know they not they're not innocent people. they're armed. There, some of them were trained, you know, the Jewish combat brigade, you know, things like this. Uh, they did put up in, an impressive fight. Um, but after the war, when reparations were offered, the number early on, the number that came to claim them was 9 million. Um, but the the number of Jews even within this sphere of influence uh, was certainly less than 6 million. And I think David Cole um, and me will, will agree on that respect. But um, like Cole and like a few others, um, the political use of the Holocaust is really my big issue and that this is uh, a way to delegitimize social nationalism because they're allegedly a part of this. Um, and therefore, the only two options in the world at the time were liberalism and communism, which is exactly what happened after after the war. Uh, the establishment of Israel had a lot to do with the Holocaust so um there's a lot of problems with the feasts. there's a lot of problems with this incredibly meticulous um mass-produced death machine in an empire that was dying simply didn't have the resources uh, to do this ultimately i believe that if you were to ask if we could resurrect a national socialist minister today and ask why are these here why are these camps here they would say um because Judaism, especially in the Soviet Union, is heavily, I'm sorry, communism in the Soviet Union is heavily Jewish. You have a tremendous amount of sympathy to the USSR amongst the Jewish uh, population of Germany. That's certainly true. Um, so, and that was that was the issue. A lot of the death came from starvation, as I said. Uh, Germany was not prepared for that war. Uh, Germany didn't even have long-range bombers or heavy tanks. They invaded the USSR. It was uh, almost a sacrificed mission. Romania was their only source. By 1941, they were already Berlin was already being bombed by the British. Um, they were using mostly light tanks. Um, they had there was no chance of them occupying the the USSR. So the Icebreaker book uh, was a brilliant analysis of this. His military was not all that strong. He had talented commanders, but um, so. Um, and this is this is a huge part of uh, part of the issue. You have this uh, massive invasion, and the East is really where I, I'm more comfortable. Anyway, um, it was an, again a, a security issue. Um, the, the Germans simply didn't have the resources to engage in something like this. The camp certainly existed, but starvation, uh, on of course, disease, typhus, um, which also is connected to starvation is responsible for these deaths but there's nothing separating the jews from a lot of other people in that respect um it was a a, you know he again because the us blocked immigration the havara agreement that was controlled by britain and the middle east was controlled by britain was blocked there and of course the madagascar issue um because it was a french colony and they had taken france so um again they were willing to and these agreements jews could leave which was a zionist issue i think we talked about this the last time if I'm not mistaken, there was someone I, I do so many of these. I can never remember. Uh, how agreement comes up quite a bit. That um, I I've seen a coin from that. There it was a there was a currency used for this as a swastika on one side and starved David on the other. Um? And of course your currency in the in the camps as well. Um? Um, I forgot. Sorry, I lost my train of thought, but we were. Um, these transfers were the first solution. And camps, I guess, were the final. But I don't think they were meant to kill anybody. They were meant for labor. And, but, God, even as early as as 43, the war was over. The Luftwaffe had been been broken. The uh, advance in the Soviet Union was stalled and there was no hope of victory. The Soviets were overwhelmingly more powerful the germans and the minute they took romania that's it the germans are cut off from fuel that's why they tried to invent a plane that ran on coal and that's the context for for a lot of this especially in the east Um, now no one's going to accept or uh, justify or do any special pleading for the killing of women and children especially they're not combatants but the combatants in the eastern front often didn't wear uniforms and in that case, that would not be protected by international law. A guerrilla army has to have a uniform and a chain of command. A lot of these groups did not. So I don't know how many where, – where these numbers are coming from, what they're basing it on, um, trying to look important. Uh, but uh, when you have nine million Jews applying for benefits at the end of the war, you have a bit of a problem. But ultimately, I think it comes down to labor and security and finally deaths were from uh again overwhelmingly from starvation and typhus
0: when it comes to uh the uh the gas chamber discussion i think his name is uh piper the guy uh who was director of the holocaust museum in david cole's first documentary in the 90s with ernst zundel um where he had said that What you see when you go to Auschwitz is actually a Soviet uh, reconstruction of what was previously there but so beaten down that the Soviets chose to build it back up in order to preserve its historical integrity. Are are you saying that that is uh, completely fake and it's a story that was told as atrocity
1: propaganda
0: by the Soviets?
1: Uh, Actually – well, of course the camp existed, but – um, it was Cole's analysis of that years and years ago. That was really my first, probably the very first piece of of um, information. Concerning the revisionist point of view of, of the Holocaust. Um, when you have walls that have no bullet holes in them. When you have two different kinds of architecture. When you have chimneys that are just almost laid on the top. The Soviets had every reason in the world. To push all of their atrocities onto onto the Germans, they were an easy target. They were low hanging fruit. The Katyn massacre is one of the most obvious examples, um, and it's all about propaganda and public opinion. So um, the Soviets had an interest in doing this. Boy, the guy who makes the plaque at Auschwitz, you know, has got to be a millionaire because every couple of weeks there's a new number. It used to be every day. You know, it used to be something like four million. Now it's down to I don't even know what it's down to now. The numbers keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, um, which you would you would think that Jews would be happy for. Yeah. I never understood that. That became such a part of the identity that I don't understand. Yeah, you know, they should be happy that the numbers aren't that high compared with others. But, you know, as far as the Jews are concerned, they were not the only threat to the German empire. They were not the only people in the camps. What made them special was their wealth and the fact that they um, were tremendously sympathetic to the USSR. Don't forget, Germany lost a part of its territory in the Bavarian People's Republic for a while. It was entirely Jewish. The Hungarian People's Republic was exclusively Jewish at the, at the upper levels. In fact, Stalin even said to Bela Kuhn, whose real name was Cohen, said, okay, every single person in this cabinet is a Jew. Please find someone who's not and make him president. And it took a very long time. Again, I'm liking on the name here, the man who became uh, president of Hungary. And he's the one who made the speech. So um there was some good reason for him to be very suspicious. But and of course a desperate need for for labor. Um but by 44-45 where most of the deaths were concerned, the war was pretty much over, uh the network of supplies had broken down, morale was nothing, you had a handful of you had very few guards at these places, these were all self-governed. Every man had to be at the front. Um and you know, mass slaughter doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They were meant to work. Uh, I think Auschwitz initially was a synthetic fuel plant. And you know, um, but yeah, it, the crimes against them, or there was crimes against everybody, especially against Germany at the end of the war. Uh, it's one of many. And as I started off with, you know, the Holocaust always irritated me. There's nothing special about this. There was no. Um, organized drive to gas every Jew in the world. Um, it was near the end it was a result of starvation and panic. And uh, we all know what happened to the Nuremberg trials. We know the torture. We know that people were were made to say things. Uh, they had to, Herman Goering is one of my favorites. Um, and um, so yeah, that's where that's what it, really what it comes down to. And what did
0: Goering say at Nuremberg?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I just read it. I read it a few minutes ago. Um. Goring said something similar to to Goebbels, and at the time, you know, he wasn't sure what awaited him. A lot of these guys thought um, uh, I- I admitting things would get them a lighter sentence, and it was never the case. Rudolf Huss is the same way. The minute Rudolf Huss, um you know, I get one of the commandants of Auschwitz uh, signed that document, he uh rejected it he signed this document saying yes i saw all these gassings and everything else things that didn't make any sense like you know gassing opening the door and then putting more people in there you know it takes 20 hours for cyclone b to be able to um uh, be out of the area and make it safe and these guys had no gloves or anything else he signed this he didn't get the sentence he thought and then repudiated so um I would never, I would never take anything that comes from Nuremberg as a, um, uh, I wouldn't take it seriously. I would never take it at face value.
0: And how did this six million gas chamber plan to exterminate? How did this ball get rolling?
1: What do you mean? I don't think there was a plan. What are you talking about?
0: I, I mean, how did? It, let's say that. What we're dealing with here is a historical fabrication. How did – what is the origin of this gas chamber extermination lie?
1: How did it start? That's that's a very good question. It's very hard to answer. I think it does start in the USSR. Um, It took a while for this. The Holocaust was not a common word until the 60s. Really, until after the Six-Day War. It began to be promoted before that. Um returning GIs talked about the mass starvation, the bodies that they found. And although the concept of this mass gassing had been around from the very you know end of the war, um, it didn't become a matter of popular parlance until several decades later. Uh, so not only do you have Soviet propaganda and Soviet papers being written on this, especially Prov that was was big into this, but also um the survivors. And again, if there's one group of people I do not take seriously It's the survivors of, of these camps, everyone tells a different story. Everyone's a hero. Everyone did tremendous things. I mean, it, it's such a badge of honor for these people that, of course, they have. It's like defectors from North Korea. They have every reason in the world to um, accentuate their importance. Um, so it, it wasn't instant. It took quite a while for this to um, to get a ball rolling, as as you would say. Nuremberg, of course, was just the first step. But people didn't realize just how bad Nuremberg was from a legal point of view. How so many of the admissions there um, were false or done under duress or done under some kind of promise or um, simply from from panic or mental illness. Um, This is one of the reasons that um, um, so the Soviets were able to take that and increase it. And the six million, I think, is a significant figure in the Kabbalah. The number six has always been significant. Um, And I think the very first time. The six million figure was used during the pogroms in the late 19th century. Um, The earliest I could find the Pittsburgh Jewish news mentioned six million killed um, in the Kishnev pogrom. I'm almost certain about that. Um, Six million uh, in in the Soviet, I'm sorry, in the Russian Empire comes up again and again and again, either killed or imprisoned. So the six million figure was also used after World War One. I. Um, I can't, I don't have the citation on, off the top of my head, but I have an entire list of um, um, usage of the word of the, of the phrase six million, going back to at least the end of the 19th century. So, you know, Jews are very powerful in media. Jews, especially after the, uh, the foundation of Israel. Um, Uh, had an interest in this. The Soviets had an interest in this. The Allies had an interest in this. The Allies, you know, carpet bombed Germany and Japan. They could have surrendered in 1943, but Roosevelt wanted total war and uh, abject surrender, which led to mass deaths. I wonder if that didn't happen. What would have happened to the camps? So um, it's not hard for this to get off the ground. When you have a so many people, so many powerful people who have an interest in promoting, it. making the Germans look terrible. This is World War One case too. Making the Germans look terrible um, justified everything that they did. Uh, you had two atomic bombs on Japan. You had the torching of cities, um, sometimes with no military value. You had the mass killings of POW, F- POWs after the war. Um, the you know, sinking of ships with German refugees on it this is you know and when, you, when that's happening you need to justify it and a lot of these camp stories so th- th- that's that that's the list of things um you know survivors media soviets the allies and this belief that somehow when you see a pile of bodies that they were somehow murdered on purpose rather than starved or or um or uh, died of some disease and I still World War II vets used to say that all the time when um, they went into the other, other camps the soviet interest i going to say is the most powerful and i think they got the ball rolling but not until the 60s did it become a, a common thing
0: when i think of other historical lies one of the ones that it, it's amazing the power that lies can have when they're just omission lies that it was never explicitly said to me germany started the bombing mm-hmm. But it was so heavily implied that I just always assumed it until I read people like Nicholson Baker, his book Human Smoke, until I read Pat Buchanan's Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War, where he cites Frederick Lindemann, who was a, uh, an advisor to Churchill in the uh, scientific area, where he was very pro bombing civilian areas to hit the morale of uh, people in Germany. And Baker in Human Smoke just lists off all the German cities that had been bombed before there was ever a bomb dropped on Britain. Um. So, so, so many lies are not explicit. They're just heavily nudged and implied yesterday there was one, uh, Bloomberg, oh gosh, it was one of the Bloomberg outlets. They said, here here's a list of uh you know people who died uh, at the January sixth quote insurrection. First, Brian Sicknick is an officer who died after getting in a fight. What they don't tell you is he had gone to the hospital and later had a stroke the next day. He was in horrible condition. They don't mention, of course, that there was a drug overdose and uh, out of the. You know, hundreds of thousands of people that were, quote, involved, some died of uh, unrelated causes. So the fact that we're living through explicit lies like this, or uh, if you remember uh, uh, Trump uh, saying the whole white national, uh, saying that there were fine people on both sides, he was referring to the statue debate, not fine people on both sides of the, you know, Klansmen, Antifa uh, de- debacle. We see these in real time. There was one that said Donald Trump told people to drink bleach when he was talking about using disinfectant uh, light as a method of uh, killing uh, a virus, which is an actual thing. So th- we have real examples in you know 2021 of uh, of uh, many people buying into explicit lies. What are some other big historical lies outside of the Second World War?
1: Oh my God! Do you have seven hours? I do. do, you, have, do, you, have, do you have? Do you have ten hours? Uh, uh, only um, for you. Yeah, of course. Um, I have a paper on the. Um, well, there's, there's. I have papers on everything. My God. Um, I already mentioned the um, the military dictators of Latin America. The left has had a stranglehold on that narrative, largely because the Catholic Church is on their side. Um, for decades I, I was I was barely able to find anything in Spanish or in English that gave a positive review of any of these guys Pinochet was one exception because he's he's well known the claim is is that these people had no ideology they were simply out for power that's not true that they served the landlord class which most certainly is not true and that they were supported by the United States really isn't true. Um, you know, even people like Batista were popular in Cuba. Most of these guys, you know, military dictatorship develops because the civilian government collapses, and it collapses because they can't come to any consensus on what to do about the problems. Usually, it's some kind of hyperinflation or mass unemployment or uh, recovery from something. And these usually wealthy people bickering and nothing gets done. The minute a military man takes action. So many of these guys are from the lower classes, from the peasant classes. Uh, they become very popular, and they tend, in certain most places, to get the job done very well. You know, the military took over, probably every country in Latin America at one time or another, um, for this because the communists were were bombing people in the street, that they were torching police stations, and what you got the, the drug money mixed into that. And when the military was overthrown, then you had these banana republics connected with the IMF taking over, and then they fall uh, deeper and deeper into into poverty. Um, so that's that's a big one for me. You know, really, if, if you want to talk about all the lies of the of the ruling class, it just, it's my, my brain freezes. I'm I'm going to tell you that everything, and I mean everything that the average educated American believes about the world is false. So let's.
0: Uh, Let's take a, a an example of a fake testimony. In uh, the early 90s in uh, D- Desert Storm, there was a woman uh, called the Nayaria Nyari, uh, the nurse uh, from yeah. Kuwait who had said on TV – it's recorded. You can see her crying that um, while she was in Kuwait, the Iraqi army came in, took the babies out of incubators, and left them to die on the cold floor. This was uh, repeated by – President of America, George Bush Sr. at the time, also by a number of senators. This is an example of atrocity propaganda because it turns out an organization, Hill and Knowlton, had worked with the U.S. ambassador to Kuwait, and that was his daughter. This woman was not a nurse in Kuwait. So if we could fall for a scam in the 90s when there's a lot more When there's more people with more access to TVs who could maybe counteract some narrative like that, it's not too unreal to think that lies like that can go widespread. I'm trying to think, um, oh – 9-11 had something to do with (laughs) invading Afghanistan. That was one because there was a plan to invade Afghanistan uh, called National Security Presidential Directive 9, I think, on September 4th, uh, 2001, uh, which was mentioned by Donald Rumsfeld in his March 23rd, 2004 testimony to Congress. So the plan was already in action. People just assume that they did it because of – Nine Eleven, um, but what are what are some other ones? Because I really want to nail this. Uh, I really want to nail this down that there are widespread, wide believed historical lies that are false.
1: And they're you know they're especially when the cost of rejecting them is high. Yeah, this is one of the reasons that they they get maintained. I mean, there's really no end to them. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, the gas attack in um, Syria. A few years ago, which was the kind of almost a dog whistle for everyone to hate um, uh, uh, Assad there. Now, I never fell because I was in college when that incubator story came out. I didn't fall for it. How many men, especially family men in uniform, are just going to do that? Uh, they're Muslim babies. It, it didn't make any sense to me. It didn't serve their interests. There was no qui bono there. Um, But the gas attack uh, in Syria, I think I was the first person to write about that right after it happened because he was winning the war at the time. This was before the Russian intervention. He was winning the war handily. And so, again, the the question always comes up is, qui bono, what's in it for him? Knowing full well or these, these assassination attempts that Putin allegedly does with his enemies. These people know full well that if they were to pull this stuff off, they would be condemned and crucified. Um, and and under attack immediately. That would give the justification. For all the policy that the West has against these places. Um Basar al-Assad knew that if he actually were to use poison gas, which, by the way, the rebels did. But um, uh, I forget what year off the top of my head. It was a very crudely made missile that had gas in it. Um allegedly had gas in it. He knew that the West would be on him, it would ju- maybe even an invasion. Um and would destroy him in the international arena. He has every reason not to do that. And we talked about propaganda, we talked about all these things. These are some of the marks. The incubator story at the time I knew it was ridiculous. I remember my father, who was a who died nineteen years ago today, um who was a combat marine in Korea? He said, "I refuse to believe that soldiers with families at home are going to just kill other Muslim Arab babies for no reason." It was blatant propaganda. It was crude in that sense. Very crude propaganda. Propaganda couldn't be more subtle. Couldn't be crude. Um, so it really just never ends. They're really, especially now, you know what Johnson's law is. This uh, dovetails just exactly what we're talking about. I don't know if we talked about it the last time. Johnson's law, which I named after myself, of course, said that the more obscure the country or region, the more the system can lie about it because there are very few people who who know any better. Or uh, alternatively, the more obscure the country, the, um, the more that journalists will make mistakes about it and not realize that they're making or not even care. You know, North Korea is your classic example. No one's allowed there. The defector stories are awful. You know, no one's pouring molten lead in prison and down their throat. These ridiculous stories. People don't realize they're being paid. Um, so, uh, again, these are also marks of, of, um, um, of propaganda. Um, anyway, uh, as far as this is concerned, you know, propaganda, manipulation, Machiavelli, it's all it's all one and the same thing. It's exactly what we're talking about here.
0: If you could uh, try and think of one more uh, uh, lie, L- uh, t- try going to the First World War. Try and think of one. Others that come to mind uh, f- for me uh, during the uh, attack on the Waco, uh, on the church in Waco. Janet Reno said babies were being beaten. No such thing was taking place uh, during Libya, uh, the invasion in uh, uh, under Obama. Uh, Wolf Blitzer on CNN said Gaddafi is giving his uh, troops Viagra to commit mass rape. The New York Times said that Russia and Putin were paying to assassinate American troops. in ABC Afghanistan, yeah. in, in Afghanistan, yeah. Um, ABC uh, showed footage. Footage, so this is proof, so we know it happened. Of Assad, oh gosh, who was it? it they had said that Assad was. Uh, indiscriminately killing the Kurds, I believe it was. It, I don't think it was Erdogan. I'm pretty sure it had to have been Assad at the time. And they said, "Here's the footage." And it turns out it was the footage from a Kentucky gun range uh, that uh, ha- that ABC had used instead. Now, think of first of all, blatant lie that tugs at your heartstrings. You think you're seeing something that you're not actually seeing, and imagine ha- like the likelihood that someone saw those flames and said, I think ABC's lying, those flames look familiar, who would have thought that? It's just so unbelievable that they almost got away with that, and that easily could have started a world war no-fly zone in Syria because of them killing the troops. That's Russian airspace, and that's war with Russia regime change for uh, the Putin administration. So this is how bad the lies are in this year with social media, the internet, all these TV stations. So um, it, uh, it'll it just drive you crazy. Give me one more historical lie, uh, maybe preferably around the First World War, but anything will do.
1: Oh, well, um, what immediately came to mind, even at the beginning of this program, was ISIS. Uh, again, I was the first one to rip apart this ridiculous story that somehow out of nowhere, a gigantic army with a rational chain of command and tons of money and uniforms and standardized equipment and a prison system and a currency, not to mention tankers to ship oil, sprang up overnight without anyone noticing. They never attack Israel. They never attack American targets. They only attack enemies. And the Syrians have said this. The Iranians say this all the time. When they murdered Soleimani um, two years ago, um, it was at the, you know, know, ISIS was the main beneficiary of that because he was formulating a plan to destroy them. Um, The Taliban are perpetually at war with ISIS. And they all say the same thing. This is, this comes from, and Russians do too, this is uh, an American creation. This comes from American intelligence. People don't realize that every penny, That goes into a bank account in that part of the world especially if there's any you know suspicion about them is is monitored you have satellites monitoring this place every square into this place all the time their camps are out in the open they train out in the open there's no way this could have formed without anyone noticing it's absolutely absurd then um as they're being supported by the west the craziest most vicious stories are circulated again always including babies rapes that they're engaged in. Even the name, one of the things that struck me was the name ISIS. Uh, first of all, the S is like in snake. It's a typical um, uh, meme in, in Hollywood. The S is used. Uh, ISIS is, is you know, kind of an obscure uh, occult idea, not to mention in English um, the pronunciation of a pagan goddess of, of Egypt, which no Muslim would ever call themselves. Um, And it's a typical – there is an ISIS. I can't remember. I think it's an archer. One of the bad organizations. It's called ISIS. I forget which one. It's your classic Hollywood bad guy name, and it sounds evil. And this formulated and and, and created a massive – almost a country uh, was formed just at the time where Americans were growing weary of the war in Afghanistan or in the Middle East in general. And the most ridiculous story, all the slave markets and everything they came up with um, were designed to inflame the Americans. We need to go and fight these people. We need to stay there and, and, and even uh, commit more troops there to destroy them, despite the fact that the US was backing them. The proof is just overwhelming uh, that these, this equipment, this money, this guidance, you can't create a militia uh, overnight that could fight the Syrian army to so a standstill syria is one of the most significant military powers of of the of the region um so again you know assad always says that the uh, isis doesn't need an air force because it has israel it has the israeli air force so it's one of the most outrageous ones so what comes from this is number one that this is like a homegrown group i mean there are locals of course they come from all over but you know this is a, a legitimate group that just formed to destroy everything number two that the justification for american involvement over there is to destroy ISIS, or number three, America is actually engaging ISIS. Yeah, you know, the Taliban has lost a large number of, of men fighting ISIS. So when I see headlines talking about the collusion between those two powers, it makes me laugh. But again, Johnson's law being what it is, um, there's not much you can say. We're talking about in this program, you know, staying sane. This is my world for 30 years. Um, I came of age, you know, I, I came into this field. I was a musician and um 1989 when Ceausescu was shot by his own army that's when i changed That was my freshman year in, in college and um that that's that was the event that you know that was a catalyst for everything that i do now and the gulf war was the first big thing desert shield was the first big thing that occurred um early in my college years and even i knew uh the as a neophyte how ridiculous the propaganda was and as I said in the very beginning, it's easy to identify propaganda, mythology, special pleading, because it's not in the interest of these people or powers to commit these crimes. It doesn't even make sense. It's so obviously um, designed to pull at your heartstrings, as, as you said, um, that it just, it's just isn't true. And it's the same thing over and over again. World War One. I, I don't know if you've seen some of the propaganda pictures of the babies on bayonets that the Germans. and uh, uh, Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. Uh, throwing them up in the air. You know, this, can you imagine? The corpse uh, factory. Yeah. Yeah, could you, could you imagine these men, the family men, who miss their wives and children with every bone in their body, uh, just killing babies for no reason. And not only, you know, for no reason, but committing these atrocities anywhere justifies the action of your enemies. The Taliban were the first group of people to condemn the 9/11 attacks. They had no connection to it whatsoever. They didn't have that kind of power.
0: And tried to hand over Bin Laden. Yeah. To to, to any third uh, party country that would accept him.
1: And they uh, well, he ended up in in Pakistan. He died a long time ago. Um, that whole story is is nonsensical. But the Taliban. Um, uh, we're well aware some uh, uh, an attack like that will justify American soldiers in the Middle East and Central Asia for decades to come. Um, and as you mentioned, the war on Afghanistan has been uh, the case long before
0: 9-11. And so, uh, other uh, – uh, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. before, we, before we're too far away from ISIS, currently there's a foreign policy advisor uh, for the Biden administration, Jake Sullivan, and he – uh, years ago in 2012 wrote an email uh, that was released uh, under in uh, Hillary's State Department emails that said, make sure Hillary knows H- uh, AQ is on our side in Syria, meaning al-Qaeda is fighting alongside America against Assad in what was called Operation Timber Sycamore. So there, uh, the Jabhat al-Nusra was the uh, Al Qaeda affiliated group that they were uh, aligned with. Of course, killing uh, the ISIS enemy Salamani, they uh, gave Al Qaeda all of Iraq after overthrowing Saddam. They sided with Al Qaeda against Gaddafi. Gaddafi was one of the first people to call for Bin Laden's arrest in like '96. Uh, so there was no Gaddafi-Bin Laden alliance. So you strengthen Al Qaeda by taking out uh, Gaddafi in, I think it was 2014, Um, you know, uh, siding with uh, the rebels in Yemen against the uh, uh, Iranian-backed regime there. That is another uh, al-Qaeda alliance. But uh, they've been supporting Mujahideen fighters since uh, Afghanistan in uh, 79 with uh, Jimmy Carter and Zbigniew Brzezinski. So, I I mean, this one is so bad. It's so evil. Like, if if you would have told someone on 9-11... Hey, we're gonna be taking these guys, uh, the, the side of uh, these guys in uh, in a war and in, in in a few years, people would have just like fainted. They would not have been able to uh, comprehend it. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but th- that ISIS point is so bad because it took so long, and people have just moved on. We've forgotten about it. Now we're now we're back to expanding NATO. Uh, every now and then we'll throw China in there, but yeah, Russia's the bad guy again for uh, wanting to worry about the border with uh, Ukraine.
1: Again, Johnson's law certainly uh, applies there. Well, I had some fun with the ISIS propaganda once. I believe it was USA Today that had a, um, a picture of what they claimed to be a Mossad spy that they had captured digging his own grave somewhere. And I'm looking at this picture. Um, it was their, 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 their Facebook because um, I was able to comment on it um i'm looking at this picture and first of all i notice he's in an orange jumpsuit like an american prison why is a guerrilla group going to have standardized prison wear that's what they're going to spend their money on that suggests that that's meant to a western audience who says okay he's a prisoner they're not going to do anything like that why would they spend money on a standardized prison outfit how can they possibly create a prison system and administration overnight not to mention an army that was the first thing second thing is that isis has never attacked uh, any kind of Israeli infrastructure. But more importantly, the jumpsuit was perfectly clean. There wasn't a drip of sweat on his head. You know, I, I think, and of course, it was also bad Photoshop. One of the worst things about ISIS, um, the ISIS story, has been the terrible Photoshopping. There's a part of me that thinks that they do this kind of thing on purpose. I was attacked viciously for pointing all of this out. I, I, I don't take don't quote me on this. Not USA Today it was something like that, though. A mainstream publication newspaper. Um, By pointing out these obvious things. And the fact that no one else seemed to notice. You talk about, you know, like, you know 10,000, you know, on Facebook, about 10,000 responses. And I was the only one. Nothing here makes any sense. There's no aspect of this. That makes any sense. But a part of me wants to think that some of these bad photoshops are done on purpose. I think the ruling class, you know, ISIS put out these magazines, perfect English, glossy, um, you know, this massive, massive organization uh, overnight, but they could do better in terms of Photoshop. The Jordanian pilot that was burned alive in his cage, um, the prisoners being walked on the side of the river with the, you know, uh, by proportion, the ISIS guys were like seven feet tall, really bad. The ruling class wants to see how far they can push. They want to see how minimal their effort has to be to get people to be convinced. And the ISIS thing has really been, in my mind, a, it's been almost a crisis in, in, in national cognition. That they can actually buy this story without asking any any um, even basic critical questions. The constant you know, Putin assassinations. You know, using these radioactive, you know, it, it, it's laughable. It, it's these people are going to know right away what happened. And Putin is going to be put on uh, front center as a bad guy. And he doesn't have to do this. These are usually very minor figures. So it's usually these days it's very crude. And I think the decline in, in American cognition is so bad that they could have bad Photoshop and not care. Um, and they're seeing how much they can get away with, but I know I went through so many of those responses on Facebook about that picture and, um, no one was attacked, of course, and no one else picked up on it. Nothing about that picture makes any sense, including this notion of having an orange jumpsuit. I mean, how organized was this group? Did the IRA have standard prison jumpsuits for their POWs? Do they have POWs at all? Overnight, this group comes into existence. But Johnson's law, even what it is, of course, very few people have the wherewithal to ask these kind of basic questions, um, and it causes a great amount of suffering. I've learned to deal with it. You know, I just turned fifty. I can, I, you know, this used to drive me crazier. I just, I just don't expect much from people. I don't expect much from the voter um, or the the voting mentality. Um, and you know, there absolutely has to be an, an aristocracy of sorts, maybe not institutionalized. But an aristocracy of those who have the leisure time to deeply get into a topic, to deeply get involved in a specific area. One of the worst things of being a specialist, as I am, is that when non specialist starts talking about it, the errors are so bad. Their knowledge <laughs> so superficial. It's a miracle that there's not physical violence. So, but that's, this, is, this is our lot, my friend.
0: Let's get into some more uh, tips on staying sane in uh, the in the world today. When you have, I mean, explicit lies, Joe Biden, Jen Psaki, and uh, Nancy Pelosi on the same day saying that the 3.5 trillion dollar stimulus bill is going to cost zero dollars. So, so when you're faced with that, how do you stay sane in an insane world?
1: Well, we say stay sane. It's not as if that particular lie is going to cause people to go into conniptions. What we really mean is that over time, these lies, not just promoted by every single outlet, but also enforced by social sanction, will wear you down and grind you down. Grinding someone down is a technique. It's a, it's a form of abuse where you just render someone helpless and they accept their, their helplessness. They truly believe, and one of my favorite words is the Greek, uh, aboulia. Aboulia is not just, it's usually defined as lethargy. But it's not just lethargy um, by itself. It's lethargy from people who don't believe there's anything left to fight for. They don't have any purpose. Mm. Um, you need to be very careful. Now, I told our tips for surviving this. Because over time, you will be worn out. Suffering is going to happen. You will lose jobs. You will lose friends. You will lose family members. I've been through it all. Don't think that somehow you're going to be the exception. You have to be prepared for it or just let's get out of the field. Um, but tips as far as our personal life is concerned. We can take breaks from time to time. We don't have to be reading every article. We don't have to get into every subject. We need to be very careful about who we argue with. Very careful. My opinion is debate should always be in writing or on social media. You can actually think out a response and type it out rather than just saying it like this. I mean someone makes a good point to me that I don't like. I have to think about it. You know, I, you know it takes a while. to I mean, go look at sources, everything. that's very difficult when it's in verbal. And verbal altercations um, tend to be really nasty. The written ones is only so, – you know, people have to read you. They don't have to listen to you in, um, verbally. You could even cite sources. That's a big deal. Don't expect too much out of people. Realize that one in eight Americans is a narcissist uh, or has those qualities. from the sociopath next door I think it came from, that it's very common but that maybe their opinions aren't from some unbiased study of the of the subject, but because it makes them sound intelligent. And in all my experience in dealing with laymen concerning these these issues, it really comes down to sounding smart see how informed i am see i'm i'm doing something i'm 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 up on this stuff um and there's a lot of resentment because of my education and background um they um uh, they want to take me down somehow uh keeping your cool is absolutely positively essential the minute you get angry and start yelling you've lost um so and i've been through this um you know, my fiance is in the mental health field, specializing in autism and schizophrenia. And, you know, she has a lot of great insights into this. But um, mental illness is very prevalent. Um, cognitive dissonance is very prevalent. I've had situations where I discussed an issue with someone, like the ISIS, not too long ago. Obviously, you can't argue with what I said about ISIS. And then, and they agree, and a few weeks later... I hear him talking, you know, giving the official account to someone else. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you can't, you can't be very trustworthy. Um, You have to have a strong support system. You can't be isolated. Uh, Isolation is terrible. That's almost a a form of torture. You have to have a support system. You have to plug into a community. One of the things that the censorship is doing is destroying any kind of online interaction. Hopefully you could find um, actual human interaction somewhere that's extremely important and that's something that i have thank god i didn't have for a while um because you will go and saying just by itself regardless of politics if you're isolated but um that's that's being alone that's not being in solitude so um avoid alcohol my god please avoid alcohol alcohol makes everything worse it doesn't make anyone feel better It is the most disastrous thing. A lot of the young guys, they get drunk and they do stupid things. And then when they wake up, they feel worse than they did before. Um, The substance abuse, even among our people, isn't minor. Um, Avoiding alcohol, avoiding uh, illegal drugs is a a big part of this. Maintaining your own personal physical health, not only your own mental health. Um, And please, this is what you do. If you're really into this, make sure you have other hobbies that are totally apolitical. Um, and as I said, you can, you can pull back for a while. You don't have to read every damn thing. So, and understand, um, what, what propaganda is and expect this. And, um, so when you explain something to someone, make certain that it's calm and measured and intelligent, no personal comments, no personal insults, try to agree with a few things that they say. So you sound, uh, you sound more agreeable than you are, you know. But oh, that's a good point. But kind of, kind of comment. Um, but that only goes so far. We will suffer. We'll suffer mentally, and because of that, we'll suffer physically. Because uh, they're very closely connected. And as I said before, you will lose jobs. You'll lose friends. You'll lose everything. I did. Thank God, I've, I've rebuilt everything. But the fact that I rebuilt it means that it is possible for any of us. You are going to suffer. But this is the fight. This is the fight. This is, you know, uh, true aristocracy is those who are fighting the regime right now. So, um, so that's, you know, we're fighting the Machiavellian regime, Machiavellian regime. And uh, which now essentially is BlackRock. So that's pretty much it. So, you know, yes, we will suffer. You have to prepare for it. But there are other things you could do to keep yourself um, hopefully on, on level ground.
0: And is there something about just feeling like you're being part of something that is relatively uh, meaningful or very meaningful? Of course, you know, very meaningful would be you insult the president and millions of people change their mind on TV. But at, you know, our power level or, you know, to anyone maybe listening, it's hard. To, you don't exactly get those road to damascus moments where everything changes for you it's a little more gradual it's much more indirect it's much more about planting seeds isn't there something encouraging about uh, choosing a worthy burden to uh to, to put on yourself to give you something to fight against that is important that should be rejected and in that process the people you meet along the way you're going to have this sort of evolution of friendship. So instead of me staying in the football realm and making friends and building relationships there in the economics, philosophy, and history realm, I'm making uh, friends and building relationships there. So it's still beneficial. It's not like this huge sacrifice. And if we lose, our life is for uh, nothing. Uh, Is there uh, anything out of that uh, word salad
1: you'd like to respond to? Oh, no, don't insult yourself. That's not word salad at all. It makes a lot of sense to me, but it is really the summary of the tips that I just said, there has to be this interaction. I don't regret a damn thing. I've I've lost some very good university jobs because of this. Um, and that's something I may never fully get over. But everything that you said is really a summary of how we're to approach mental health here. Um, that we are in the right. I never make reference to like the First Amendment. I have the First Amendment right to say something. No, I'm right. That's why I'm saying it. Not because there's some abstraction that gives me permission the fact that they're centering so brutally proves that they're very, this is not exactly a secure regime. Yeah. The double, yeah. You know, the double standard, the January 6th versus the riots last year.
0: Oh total my and God, complete not double, even
1: close. You know, and if yeah. someone can't see that, maybe you shouldn't be talking to them at all. Maybe they're not capable and don't assume that everyone's capable of reason, that everyone's capable of following a chain of, of arguments and propositions to their conclusion i found that not a whole lot of people can do that don't assume that everyone's capable of love don't assume that even in our own, on our own side you have people who were there for non-political reasons that are there for personal reasons um or you know i always wondered you know when i was the editor of the barnes review i was i was like you know front center of the nationalist movement i, I heard it from everybody i knew everybody and you know we get these crazy letters usually handwritten about their teddy bears and whatever it was just insanity And I always wondered, I said, are these people crazy and they join our side or are they on our side and therefore they went crazy? I never, I I can't, I can't answer that. But um, this is not for everybody. History is made by fanatical, determined, cohesive minorities. There's no exception to this whatsoever. The masses don't matter one way or the other, contrary to what Marx would say. Um, And uh, our own personal morality and virtue has to come first. We have to be very, very, very careful about that. And um, and we have to give an example. I think people are converted more by example than by ideology, because even people who um, I personally have have changed. uh, often mangled my words and my meanings. Making it more conducive to their own self interest. Um, No, our example can can be a big part of this. Um, So you know, look, the Soviet Union fell. In and of itself. There was no war. There was no massive famine. It collapsed. It collapsed almost overnight. From 89 to 91. It collapsed almost. This has never been done in history. Usually there's a war. There's a severe economic shock. Something like that. This just happened. Um, And all of those who were fighting this system. For decades were vindicated. Because everything they said. Turns out to be true. That could happen with any regime. That we're fighting. for those people who will accept the idea that the January 6th with this horrible riot and the riots in every city in America before were wonderful and peaceful, maybe they're just not capable of thinking. Pick your battles. Pick your friends. But if you don't have a support system, uh, you're going to be in a lot of trouble, and you may then turn to drugs uh, to get over it.
0: One of the things that I've done is I've tried to make sure – That I'm reaping a benefit out of all of my interactions. So as opposed to me just sort of going into this, I need to keep the good fight up, I'm going to try to convince this person, maybe they'll teach people, and it'll create this chain reaction. A lot of people don't listen, and you'll say, well, why did I waste so much time on them? So what I try to do is learn from every one of my interactions, whether it's the dumbest person I know or it's you know someone with multiple PhDs who I'm disagreeing with. From each person, you could see, e- even if it's just uh, n- not someone really into politics, how does the political messaging affect someone like this who doesn't know much, yet they have the same opinions that the CIA, the Council on Foreign Relations, the the New York Times, and the university's professor have, isn't that interesting that all these people have the same idea, and if you peel back one layer, they're not really interested in uh, in, in what's uh, going on or how they develop that opinion. So I'll always try to harmonize the interest that, all right, I am going to learn from this conversation how a smart person believes a lie, what their response is, how they rationalize the most ridiculous things you could possibly say. And what are they gonna say if I ask them a question about something instead of putting it in a statement format? How do they respond? What is the feedback mechanism? What works, what doesn't work? What opens their mind? What gets them to stop to think? These sorts of things allowed me to stop driving myself crazy. Cause I go, okay, I'm gonna talk to this person for maybe 20, 30 minutes. Um, it won't be a waste at 30 minutes if I didn't convince them, cause I probably won't. But I will learn and I will have brought that horse to water. Maybe the horse doesn't decide to drink. I will have brought them to the water of truth. Or so I think, maybe I'm wrong about everything and they're bringing me to the water. uh, They're bringing me to um, the fountain of knowledge. But either way, harmonizing those long-term and short-term goals and, and me saying, how do I find the benefit in this for myself, for my family, for the people in my immediate group? That has been a really big thing for me also just having standards for people who i take criticism from uh for the same reason you uh wouldn't uh take a blind man's opinion of a painting a lot of the idiots of the world the ignorati as i call them or <laughs> like it's the world's biggest secret society it's so secret the people who are the members don't even know that they're members that's like how that. big it is billions of people um uh, that it, it's it's the equivalent of uh, asking a deaf person who, who their favorite uh, mu- musician is. Yeah. They, their inability to distinguish uh, distinguish truth from falsehood or you know, have any sense of um, you know an ethical compass. I just think uh, th- that it's important to be able to disassociate, uh, not disassociate, to distinguish between valid opinions and invalid ones. in the same way I might say, you know what? I really disagree with pilots on how to fly planes. It's important that people just laugh at me and say, well, yeah, you're not a pilot. You haven't studied. Shut up. It's it, it, There shouldn't be a vote among the passengers on how the pilot should fly. He's right. Everyone else is ignorant because maybe they haven't taken the time um, to do so or maybe they were misled, whatever. Also, the division of labor has been really big for me. So, to rec- so when people say, yeah, I'm not really... Uh, informed on, you know, uh, politics or anything or banking, but maybe I'll start watching the news. I say, whatever you do, do not watch the news. It's it's worse than doing nothing because you think you're getting something when you're getting lies. So I say, all right, so where do you work? And he sort of, you know, reluctantly says Goodwill, which for those not in America, that is an organization that takes used items and sells them. Uh, collects them and then sells them, distributes them around uh, states and uh, and whatnot. So it's seen as like the cheap place, but it's getting nicer. And as people get newer things, they give their old stuff to Goodwill and Goodwill sells them at a heavily discounted price. So telling that person that what they're doing is they're playing a role in the process of getting products and services to people at the lowest levels of income that our grandparents and grandparents never would have had access to all these clothes and all these books and all these CDs. Um, to all the knowledge of all the books and Goodwill alone is is really big. T- telling them that they still have value and that they have meaning, that, first of all, feels good for you. But also, it doesn't just suck people into, I'm either involved in the cathedral apparatus of the state, or I'm not really a good person. Anyone who builds a house for a family to live in might do more for the world than I've ever done with with this podcast. All right, maybe you have to build a few houses. The point is, is that right. telling people uh, that their value, that's another thing that helps uh, build communities. You don't feel so isolated. And it's not like, I only find my value in Kamala Harris and the speeches that she gives. So, uh, those are some of the things that uh, come to mind. Oh, also babysitting, I think, is great just to deal with, I mean, kids who are not going to ask me about politics or talk about anything too uh, t- too serious, just to see them laugh at, you know, books or someone falling. It's so nice to just sit back and, and appreciate it, not to mention a bunch of us. Uh, atheists got together and went to church on Christmas Eve uh, in Scottsdale, Arizona. Met the nicest people there. De- developed more relationships in those probably four or so hours than I have in in most online uh, forums or anything uh, uh, re- re- uh, revolving uh, in the uh, in the political realm. Those are pretty much the main things that come to mind. Also, sports. Playing football is also nice too. To, just to get uh, so, some energy out. Any final thoughts on staying sane in an insane world?
1: Well, how do you follow that? Um, I, um, you know, I say to everyone that I do two things very well. I'm a very good historian, and I make very cute babies. Um, family is absolutely essential. But when that institution is falling apart, this is where isolation comes from. Uh, finding the right woman and making children is essential today, not just in America, but especially in places like Eastern Europe where our population is falling. The media has led to a situation where white males have such a chronic low self-esteem. It even gets into the music and the art that's produced. You know, Nirvana was almost based on it. Um, and this is why suicide, the overwhelming majority of suicides in America are middle-aged white males. They're being replaced. They don't think they have value. They don't think they're anybody. They've lost their kids. They've lost their marriage. There's nothing left. They're a burden on everybody. Um, so family is essential. Babies The thing when I I raised two boys and I love the fact that they um, their innocence. I think their innocence is one of the reasons that people abuse them. Child abuse comes from this terrible envy that they don't have to worry about the things that they do. Um. Childhood, early childhood is, is the Garden of Eden. The fall is puberty. And uh, puberty and the fall, <coughs> the of Adam, Adam and Eve from the garden, uh, are very similar. And the whole, prior to that, um, the innocence is something wonderful. And it changed my life completely. I was a very good father. And um, it came very natural, naturally to me. It gives you a tremendous amount of confidence. You realize, I mean, it's the ultimate activism. Making healthy children and raising them is the ultimate form of activism michael would come to the demonstrations with me now with the twp i had a lot of pictures of that he loved every minute of it he was 14 15. um he was um uh, taken because he was my son he was taken very seriously everyone loved him uh, he was very brave He very strong you know it changed his life um so but you know what sometimes i wonder uh, you talked about the, the distinction between your political stuff and your private stuff i find out that that tends to collapse um, it, it's eventually going to come out. You can't keep private stuff private, especially if you're doing what we do. So family is absolutely essential. Churches are essential, but even that is is getting worse and worse as time goes on. Self-interest, arrogance, conformity, fear seem to rule everything. Just like the Soviet Union, the capitalist regime is going to fall under its own weight too. What are we going to do? Uh, uh, you talked about the, the um, ignorati. Uh, I also, when I was um, my first speech to the Freedom Palooza people, I made the statement that the United States is the only country where you're going to (coughs) have really what the Western world where you could have a total economic collapse and have no one notice. Because of how everything is spun. It's worse than you think. However, there are uh, bits of good news. There are still reasons to be happy. You shouldn't be dictated to by the fact that we're in this position. And um, and family, church connections, uh, and close friends. These, you, you, there's no way I could stress that anymore. Without them, you are going to be in some trouble. And I think this is really where alcohol and drug addiction comes from.
0: What is the important difference between Catholicism and Orthodoxy?
1: Oh, um, I didn't see that coming. Um, uh, created grace. The idea that the Bishop of Rome can decide where grace goes is absolutely essential in Catholicism. It's the foundation of papal infallibility. In orthodoxy, grace simply is. The energies of God, the presence of God on earth simply simply is. And the bishop can then point to it. The ascetic life is meant to make you able to receive it. Eden is here. Heaven is here. I shouldn't say heaven. Eden is here. But we're too sinful to, to notice. We're too hung up on usually what comes down to self-interest, uncontrolled passions, sex, greed, um, media control, uh, self-importance or the opposite. And we can't experience it. the ascetic life, you know, the monastics um, and orthodoxy are, are the dominant part where bishops have to come from. But the Roman church almost deifies the bureaucracy. It deifies the. Um, the Pope of Rome as having total control over other bishops. uh, Complete control because he is the one who decides where grace goes In orthodoxy. There is no such concept. Um, So that changes everything between the two between the two um, between the two sides. It wasn't always that way. They had uh, 800 years of common life. Um, But gradually this. You know, this difference, the Pope of Rome being the inheritor of the Roman Empire. Uh, and of course, the Roman Empire uh, surviving in the East, um, that was the key difference. And when Gregory the Seventh, in his Dictatus Papae, claimed that he can uh, overthrow emperors, he had full economic control, he decides every, every political question and every religious question, and it's one of the central texts in Catholicism, um, that changed it. There was no chance of a reunion between the two sides at that point. It was one of the, um, and it was right after the schism, right after 1054 establish establishing themselves as a totalist bureaucracy um that is not the case in in the east so um that so in a very very simple way that's how i would describe it created grace this notion that the bishop of rome has this tremendous power is uh and everything that comes from that is the main distinction
0: And if I want a history of the Orthodox Church, of course reading the Bible is important, what is a uh, book that focuses on the history of the Orthodox Church uh, that uh, you'd recommend to people? If they only have time for one, which one should they read?
1: Oh, that's difficult. Um, Well, you should pick up my stuff. Um, My book on um, the – well, it's the Orthodox idea in Russian literature is very important. Um, but Timothy Ware, anything by Timothy Ware, he's—I don't agree with him on a lot of things—but Timothy Ware is an excellent source. Um, another excellent source is Vladimir Moss. All of his stuff is free online. He has full histories of the Orthodox Church in different countries. I don't agree with him on everything, um, but um, he's very intelligent, and worthwhile. So, uh, but Timothy Ware again t- tends to be a bit of a modernist. Vladimir Moss is probably where I would—I would send people. Um, the Orthodox Christian Information Center is a huge website. This is as old as the web. There is almost nothing in the church that isn't on there. Um, they have a whole history section. That's where I would go, and it's very imposing. You know, very few people are actually going to bother to do this. But if I had to pick one, um, it would be one of the uh, historical works of Vladimir Moss. There is a history of the Orthodox Church. I can't, I can't think of the exact title off the top of my head. That's where I would send them.
0: If you think of that title, send it to me. I'll put it in the description below. And then um, final question. What is a book or uh, website you would recommend to someone if they wanted to learn how to critically think and decrease the likelihood they are manipulated by propaganda?
1: A book. Um, this is or not essay some...
0: or website yeah. or person to follow, anything in yeah. that area.
1: It comes from experience. It's very difficult to read your way into this. What happened to me is that in college and grad school, I began to read, you know, forbidden authors. E. Michael Jones was a big one who just demolished the establishment history and a whole bunch of topics. Degenerate moderns was the first thing that that I read of his. And when you start realizing that, oh, my God, so much of what society believes is absurd and false and damaging, it changes your life. You can't you can't. Think the same way again. You can't function the same way again. After that, you start taking all of these claims with a grain of salt, even if they are true. But. That kind of criticism, that the critical mentality, uh, it comes from being a full time worker in this field. If you don't have the background knowledge, if you don't have the tremendous reading that goes into any particular subject, let alone broad concept. Um, you need to rely on others. Um. And simply asking someone who you trust. What is really going on? I get that. I get these emails all the time. What is going on here? But doing this comes from experience. Uh, young men shouldn't presume. It's kind of cringy when young men who don't really know that much start, start you know, acting like they're the the guardian of Aristotle. But age and, um, and experience is what's going to allow you to uh, identify. We talked about identifying propaganda. It takes a while to, you know, I can just get a whiff of it. Uh, there's certain sometimes even unspeakable ways that you can understand it's not necessarily something in the writing, but there's something about the 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 syntax that suggests falsehood. Um, and, um, you know, and this is why I'm so, you know, logic cuts through all the extraneous detail and gets to the heart of the matter. And that's what thinking is. That's extremely rare. Um, the essence is what we're aiming at. But most people are attached to the, um, accidents. Or the qualities. And qualities are easier to access. They're color and shape and size. And emotion. But um, getting to the heart of the matter on something. Is rare. I think. Aristotle. How many people can read. Posterior analytics by Aristotle. But that is the logical text. Um, But I think over time. Reading critical books. You can begin to imitate. The critical method. You'll be taken in. I mean, you know, I've made mistakes. Believe it or not, um, but it, it's something. Again, it comes from experience. There isn't a single book out there that can that can do that for you.
0: Thanks to everyone for watching Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. And the Libertarian Institute, Dr. Johnson. Thank you so much for your time.
1: I appreciate it, man. Best questions. Excellent show.